Gaggle podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk politics beyond what's in print. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, a national reporter at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me this week at the Capitol Bureau are... Ron Hansen, I cover the congressional delegation. Daniel Gonzalez, I write about immigration. And Jessica Baim, I cover Phoenix City Hall. This week on The Gaggle, what do the recently released Facebook ads tell us about what the Russians were up to during the 2016 cycle and their activities in Arizona? Is another migrant caravan going to be headed towards the U.S. in spite of backlash by President Trump and his supporters? And Phoenix City Hall is embroiled in controversy over marijuana dispensaries and potentially fraudulent signatures. But first, the Trump White House has refused to apologize for a comment made behind closed doors about U.S. Senator John McCain, who is battling brain cancer. The comment was made in uh, relation to the senator's opposition to Trump's CIA nominee. The aide apparently dismissed the comment during a meeting with communication staffers, saying it didn't matter because, quote, he's dying anyways. Ron, you have covered kind of the fallout of this controversy, and uh, it, it seems as though the White House has done absolutely nothing to try to tamp it down. Yeah, basically they have uh, suggested that the problem was the leaking, not the statement itself, which is really sort of puzzling and, and disappointing, I must say, for a lot of folks, that that kind of sentiment is not regarded as out of bounds, uh, especially at this time of great personal pain for the McCain family and, and for Arizonans who are just... I think, pining for a little more civil discourse in our politics. Um, Megan McCain, of course, noted this matter on her television perch at The View and noted that this was something disappointing that this person would still have a job. Um, and she tried to take the high road with it and, and say that you know she's in a, in a better place emotionally, um, having reconciled herself to her father's uh, uh, medical situation and uh, was more gracious about it than I think we might have expected. But ultimately, this has created uh, a lot of um, controversy on Capitol Hill and more widely in the public that, uh, again, this kind of sentiment is is seen as okay and in bounds because the administration, as you noted, still has not done anything to suggest this was inappropriate. Ron, what do you make of this argument that the White House put out that, you know, it was an internal conversation. The woman met it, met it as a joke. It was, it was uh, tasteless, and she should have done it. But the larger issue here is that people have to be able to feel comfortable uh, in in internal discussions to say, you know, what uh, what they how they feel about things. And, and she happened to make this joke, and then it was leaked out and made public. What do you make of that argument? I I think there's probably a lot of validity to it in the sense that. Um, People do talk uh, differently whenever they think that this is something that would be uh, between colleagues or between friends and such. I think the, the problem here is once those privileged communications become more publicly known, what do you do in response to that? And as far as we can tell, there have been no consequences. There's not been any uh, you know, hand-wringing by the administration, certainly not by the president, over this thing. And, and that, I think, is where 
the disappointment would be for a lot of people is that, okay, we've all made statements, uh, gallows humor at one time or another. The question is when that becomes more widely known, do you step back and say, look, folks, it was a joke, I'm sorry, and, and I wish only the best for that person or whatever the subject might be. And it just feels like that has not happened in this case. I think what is also puzzling about this this whole saga is that the aide, uh, Kelly Sadler, former writer and editor for the Washington Examiner, uh, told Megan McCain during a, a phone call in which she apologized that she would issue a public apology. And here we are how many days later and this public apology has not been made. And that obviously has raised questions as to why not? Was she specifically directed not to publicly apologize? Um, is there something else going on that we don't that we don't know about? I mean, certainly um, other people have rushed to the senator's um, defense. This is a man who has served in the Senate for six terms. He is, um, you know, beloved. Although not all of his colleagues agree with him on every issue. I mean, he he is a a global figure, and he is, you know. It, at a very vulnerable time in his life, and uh, so certainly had a lot of people rushing rushing to his defense. And I, I think the context of this is important too. That um, John McCain was being talked about because he was urging his colleagues to reject a Trump nomination for the CIA, and this is once again John McCain butting heads with Donald Trump. And given the history between them dating to at least 2015. This is something that, uh, again, it, it just seems like, given John McCain's health, that the president should be able to allow something, uh, basic human decency to rule the day, even uh, if there's um, some uh, frustration that the senator hasn't always been on board. It, it just seems like uh, there's something missing here in, in basic uh, courtesy. Yeah, I've wondered if there's, if considering how long this has dragged on, if there's some political calculation, some political advantage to for the White House to allow this to go on. I think it's anyone's guess, really, at this point, until there's another leak. Politics aside, I think McCain's family is really just hoping that, you know, the senator can spend his final days, if indeed these are his final days, at peace and with his family and with his friends and his wife, Cindy McCain, um, you know, said as much on, on Twitter in response to this controversy, um, just reminding people that this is a man who has children, he's a, he's a, a grandfather, he is a husband, uh, and, and so people ought to keep uh, that in mind when they're speaking about him. Dan, you traveled down to Mexico several times uh, as the migrant caravan that we've heard so much about was making its way north. This is the caravan that uh, President Trump has often referred to when talking about uh, illegal immigration and its effects uh, on, on the United States and the need for a border wall. What did you learn in your time during your time with with these uh with these people well one thing i think is is interesting about this caravan is it's been going on for 10 years and it's never gotten any attention before 
And that's because the caravan has been pretty much, you know, 100 to 200 people. They arrive at the border. There might be some local reporting on it. But it's never um, gotten much attention, despite that being one of the goals of the caravan, is to draw attention to why people are leaving, uh, fleeing Central America. There's, there's tens of thousands of people from Central America that are arriving at the border every year, unaccompanied minors and families. And this caravan, part of its goal is to draw attention to it. Well, this year... It not only did it draw attention, it drew this immense backlash from the Trump administration, including the deployment of National Guard troops to the border, a, a zero-tolerance policy that was adopted by the, the Department of Justice, where they're going to prosecute every um, migrant who attempts to cross illegally. They're going to make it an official policy to separate children from their parents to deter more people from coming. And the reason it blew up to becoming such a huge issue is because of the sheer size of the caravan. Um, ordinarily, as I mentioned, is 100 to 200 people. This year, in the beginning, there were as many as 15, 1,600 people had joined the caravan. And that was because they unexpectedly saw this huge rush of people from Honduras, where there's been tremendous amount of political unrest after the uh, November um, elections of the president, the re-election of their president, Juan Orlando Hernandez. Um, a lot of people in, Herna in, in um, Honduras believe that he won election through fraud and corruption. He is backed. He was supported by the United States. His re-election, and that created this flood of people leaving Honduras. The caravan exploded in size, and all of a sudden you had these images of, you know, fifteen hundred people making their way towards the United States. It was very dramatic. And then there was these. There was headlines in an article in BuzzFeed, and then on a program on Fox and Friends, um, basically portraying you know, this large number of people headed for the U.S. border and Mexico was doing nothing to stop it. And that's really what, what, what happened here. Can you take us inside the caravan? Are these buses? Are they cars? Are they bicycles? Are they vans? The caravan, basically, they started off in southern Mexico on the border of Guatemala. And they when they start off, they really have no idea how they're going to get to the United States. And they basically travel on foot they ride freight trains, which is known as La Vistia in, Me in uh, Mexico. Um, they had uh, some private companies donated charter buses. Um, so it took them about a month to get to the United States border to cover that 2,500 miles. And I can tell you that the very first day that we arrived in Puebla, Nichols and I, the photographer, it was, it was in the evening, and the migrants were being held in, uh, or sleeping in four different shelters. And it was, it was, frankly, very, very shocking and sad to walk into this room and seeing such, such desperation, really, to see, you know, women traveling. Many of the people that were on the caravan were women with very small children and sleeping on the floor in, in a church um, with very limited, you know, toilet facilities, uh, very limited, you know, bathing facilities, you know, wearing the same clothes they'd been wearing all their worldly possessions, you know, in a, in a bag or two. It was, it was the, the kinds of images that were coming out of that caravan are the kinds of things you think of as 100 years ago when people were, you know, fleeing, you know, desperate situations and coming to the United States. That's really what it reminded me, that we're, we're witnessing kind of a new wave of migration, of, of desperation, of, of extreme desperation of people arriving here. And that's really what struck me was when I when I first saw the, the, uh, the migrants and the conditions that they were traveling on. Daniel, when you talked to these migrants, were they aware of 
what was happening in the United States, what the president was saying about them, the the national media stir they had created. Yeah, that was definitely something that they were aware of. I mean, they were their their main objective was really to, to survive to the next day. They didn't know where they were going to get, you know, their next meal, where they were going, how they were going to get to the United States. They were traveling under extreme uncertain conditions. But on the other hand, they couldn't help but not hear about what was happening in the United States. It was became such a public event when President Trump started uh, tweeting on Easter morning of all weekends that he wanted to stop the caravan. And then a few days later, he announced that he was going to deploy National Guard troops. And that actually, a lot of people were very scared by that. And a lot of people who had started off with the intention of coming to the United States decided that they would stay in Mexico and try to apply to, to for some kind of humanitarian visas and remain there. And this, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems as though this was intended to be you know, a symbolic image of how immigration could be done the right way or could be done legally. Yes, definitely. And that's a very good point. Um, I think the way the Trump administration portrayed it was that these were people who were coming to kind of, you know, flood our borders and get across illegally. And there were people who were, who, you know, I that was one of my stories along the way, that there were people who they knew that they didn't have a good case for asylum and they were going to try to enter the United States illegally. But the majority of people who were traveling in this caravan were people who felt like they had a shot at asylum, and they were going to do it the legal way. They were going to travel through Mexico, um, and when they got to the United States, they would present themselves at official ports of entry and request asylum there. And that is that is the, the legal way to do it. There, are, it, It's set up under international and our own law, asylum laws that people have a right uh, if they feel uh, uh, persecution in their own country, that either it's either at the hands of their government or their government isn't doing anything to stop it, they have a right to apply for asylum. And not everyone did it the so-called right way, right? Like, I mean, you had these pretty powerful images of people trying to climb over the border wall. You had activities that I think when you're looking at this from Washington, D.C. or Capitol Hill or in Iowa or, you know, Idaho, I mean, y- these are images that seem to play right into the narrative that President Trump and hardline conservative Republicans have been talking about for years, that, you know, the, the country will be overrun by illegal immigrants and just look at these images. I mean, already um, a candidate for Arizona's U.S. Senate um has been referencing these images as, you know, exhibit A as to as to why this is such a problem. Yes, exactly. There was a there was a scene at the very last day there was a rally held at a park that straddles both sides of the border where the border fence meets the ocean uh, between Tijuana and San Diego. And during this rally, out of sheer enthusiasm, a lot of migrants scaled the the border fence there. It's, you know, maybe 20 feet tall. And they were straddling the top of the fence and waving flags. Their intention was not to cross the border illegally. It was just to kind of send a message, you know, we're conquering, you know, the the, the, the fence. But they, those were people who intended to cross the border legally later on that day. But those images were very unfortunate because it reinforced this image that people were kind of crashing the border and trying to get in illegally when really they were they were kind of got caught up with the enthusiasm of the day and then later on they walked as a procession to the actual official gate there in San Isidro to present themselves to to uh, 
to border officials. I mean, and, and you're right. There was a there was a capitalized by uh, the candidate, you know, Kelly Ward. She tweeted up about that. And I think the, the the line was, "This is not the way immigration should look like," or something along those lines. And it, it should be noted that later on that day, there were 11 people who supposedly were part of the caravan that uh, Department of Justice um, Attorney General Jeff Sessions said had been caught trying to uh, enter the country illegally around that area. You know, all the, the talk about the images and, and the takeaway for people, I can't help but think of um, how in, uh, inconsistent this is with the reality for much of the, uh, the immigration uh, problem. Uh, Dan, as you've written many times, the you know the bulk of people who come in do not do it this way. Um, these are folks who overstay visas and such. These are folks who entered legally and and just don't leave when they're supposed to on time. That would be a more typical outcome that would be more reflective of of how we arrive at the immigration situation that we have. The other thing that is is on my mind on it, having just covered the the eighth congressional district special election, is that this is similar to the circumstances that we saw for Steve Montenegro, uh, the Republican candidate in that primary. Uh, his family fled uh, El Salvador and um, at a time when there was a humanitarian crisis unfolding there and there were people coming by the thousands to the border seeking and receiving sanctuary in places like Tucson uh, at the time and um, later dealing with years and decades even of these uh, unresolved um, uh, visas that they get to stay uh, for an extended basis on. The Montenegro family came legally using a, a, an option that really wasn't more widely available for most people, and that was because his father worked in ministry. And so the Montenegros were able to essentially jump the line and come to this country legally using a lightly used um, uh, option that most of the folks today, we just, they don't have that option. They have to come through uh, whatever process it is that they can arrive at, but even that process is still not truly reflective of the reality of whatever the immigration situation really is. Yeah, those are good points. And one thing I should mention that's important here is that although we have seen this rise in Central Americans coming to the border, the overall number of people being apprehended by the Border Patrol is at the lowest levels in four decades. When you're talking about the numbers, the reasons, the amnesty provisions, and kind of the real nuanced, um, very complicated um, complexities of this issue, I guess. I mean, d does that resonate with voters? I mean, it seems to me that we're, we're past the time for nuanced conversations and real thoughtful conversations about why people are coming and the policies that might um, make those numbers even lower um, when it comes to just talking about this as a political issue heading into the 2018 elections what are people looking for I think that's a really good point I don't, I don't think I think there's a lot of people who are well informed on this issue but I think in general most people pick up how they feel about this issue, just from sound bikes or what how politicians what politicians say about it, and and I think you know we've seen in Arizona how politicians have very effectively used this issue um, to 
uh, get votes because a lot of people are, are just not going to get beyond the soundbite for the politician. Jessica, you had some great reporting out this week about an obscure board at the city of Phoenix that deals with planning and zoning cases. Usually when we're talking about these boards, they're uh, dealing with commercial, uh, you know, development, some residential issues. It's rare for there to be a lot of controversy beyond the kind of the the NIMBY folks and the neighborhood folks. Uh, Your series has involved a medical marijuana dispensary. What did you learn? So in the last several months, there have been appeals of multiple medical marijuana dispensaries in the city of Phoenix. And those appeals go before a board called the Board of Adjustment, like you were discussing, made up of volunteers. And usually when those appeals come before this board, you're pretty clear as to who's appealing them. There's someone who lives nearby who doesn't want this, you know, in their backyard. There's someone who works nearby who doesn't want this to distract from their business. But with these cases, there have been some allegations that perhaps a competitor is actually the one behind all of these cases. Uh, There are people listed um, as, you know, neighbors, but uh, there have been some pretty serious allegations of fraud and forgery that suggest that maybe those aren't the actual people who are behind the actual appeal. And these dispensaries, I mean, there aren't very many of them statewide. When when voters approved the the medical marijuana law back in 2010, they limited the number of dispensaries that could be set up in each, they're called CHAWs, but essentially each geographic location. And, uh, you know, these licenses are, you know, can be highly lucrative, especially if the state moves towards uh, legalization of recreational marijuana. Uh, This is something that they talked about doing in 2016. Voters rejected it, but there was a big rush on these licenses. So we should probably make that point clear. When we're talking about, you know, where these dispensaries are located, um, can you give us a sense geographically where they are and who are the forces that would, you know, that would want to overturn these decisions? Yeah, absolutely. Like you mentioned, um, this industry is probably one of the most competitive, if not the most competitive industry in Arizona right now, partially because of the limits on um, licenses, but also because each city sets up their own uh, rules as to where these Uh, dispensaries can be located. So for example, you can't be so many feet from a school or from a um, community center. So you really put the squeeze on the industry where, you know, it's very lucrative. There's very limited opportunities to locate. um, And it kind of breeds this competitive atmosphere that I think has maybe led to what is occurring here. So basically, um, there have been um, a couple of Phoenix lobbyists that um, will be well known to you if you followed our coverage, Joe Villasenor and Layla Ressler. They are both former city staffers. Um, They were involved in a controversial land deal with Councilman Noah Kowski a few years ago, Um, and their names keep appearing in these appeals. Um, They say they're just very engaged with the community. They um, have genuine concern about these facilities. 
the other side, the the dispensaries that are being opposed, uh, they don't think so. They think that, you know, it's possible that a competitor who doesn't want their dispensaries to take away uh, part of their profits are putting them up to opposing them. So that's kind of where we're at. There's this huge controversy. There have been some serious allegations that the appeals that were uh, filed were possibly filed fraudulently um, using people that may not have actually signed the appeal form. Um, And there have been some allegations that petitions that have been submitted both for and against dispensaries had um, forged signatures. Can you give us a sense of what the legal consequences could be of this if if indeed this is true? I mean, if it's true, there's obviously criminal implications that come along with fraud and forgery. Um, at this point, we know that the city of Phoenix is investigating whether they refer that to an outside agency um, that could do a criminal investigation is yet to be seen. Democratic committee released about 3,500 Facebook ads that were created by Russians during the 2016 election. Ron, 18 of them specifically had ties or references to Arizona. What did you learn from those ads? I learned that this whole Russian-led campaign was fairly bizarre. (laughs) It's the only thing I can really, uh, way I can think to describe it. So one of the ones that caught my eye was a, a an ad that referenced a murder-suicide at a Glendale High School in 2016, and it involved uh, two girls that were involved with each other, and the ad involved a, an LGBT group um, that was um, fictitious and pushed by the Russians, uh, really with a message of, hey, this is not a time to be hateful, and uh, there are people who are trying to condemn our lifestyles and, and such. So it seemed like an inclusive kind of ad with a fairly innocuous message. And then a month later, the same group that was pushing that message had a message about uh, a gay-themed coloring book with Bernie Sanders and pushing uh, this dialogue with it that Hillary Clinton supporters had been saying ugly things about Bernie Sanders, and I think you should be uh, you know, looking at this coloring book, and Bernie would approve of this. And it's just sort of this bizarre connection between these kinds of events that seem so completely unrelated otherwise. Um, and really the whole theme of all the ads, not just in Arizona, seemed to be about fomenting discord and, and dividing people you know, on battle lines of ideology and, and race and other sorts of things. Um, and it didn't really seem to have any clear purpose other than to create controversy. This is the, uh, we should say too, that this is the um, Internet Research Agency. This is the Russia-based company. They are at the center of Special Counsel Robert Mueller's February indictment of 13 Russians and three companies that uh, were seeking to influence the 2016 cycle. Some of these ads focused on pretty non-controversial promotions of things like Pokemon, 
Um, others clearly seem designed to inflame relations related to uh, or, or inflame emotions related to race relations. Did it work? That is the million-dollar question, and it's not clear. Uh, at least it's not clear to me how um, obvious its effects were. There's some analysis that suggests that these ads have been circulated and discussed and um, uh, reposted by people to the tune of about 140 million times. But to what end? Again, if people want to circulate ugly memes on racial themes and or guns or what have you, uh, Americans are pretty good at circulating those on their own. This was presumably with an eye toward influencing the 2016 election. And on that front, the effects to me are still fairly uh, ponderous. Uh, Hillary Clinton, for all the anti-Clinton efforts, um, she did win the popular vote. And if not for the you know, quirkiness of the Electoral College, she would have been elected president despite all of this. Um, the impact in Arizona, for example, again, is, is also fairly speculative. There were only a handful of ads that were specifically targeting Arizona, uh, and how widely circulated those were is not especially clear. You know, one of the ones, though, that, that they did push was uh, an ad that they put uh, with several border states that was really kind of pushing this border security, stop the invaders kind of theme that has worked well and been politically popular here in the past. But again, this isn't creating a new uh, fracture within our electorate. It's sort of reinforcing something that already existed uh, with an eye toward maybe at best turning up uh, turnout. All that said, Arizona went for Donald Trump by three and a half percentage points, which was the worst showing by a Republican candidate since uh, 1996 when uh, Bob Dole lost here to Bill Clinton. So the effects are really hard to understand and suss out of all of this. What it clearly is, though, is a window into what is possible and the way that uh, a foreign state would want to interfere in our elections and really should be seen, I think, more than anything else as a warning shot that uh, all the intelligence analysts seem to agree that uh, Russia is not done. Other states may have similar interests, and uh, the question is what will Facebook and others, including the government, do to prevent this in the future? So that is the $2 million question. What is Facebook doing to prevent this from happening in 2018 and moving forward? So the company has put out statements, one, acknowledging their uh, lax oversight of this in the first place. So the mea culpa is number one. Number two, though, is they are overhauling their ad uh, policies and, and the way that these ads will be um, processed and identified. There's a, a goal of trying to separate things. And, and we've seen even broad advertising campaigns from Facebook recently suggesting that they want to get back to basics and, and be more of a person-to-person uh, -person, uh, based communication service. And I think there's an effort to try and make sure that they identify uh, foreign sponsored ads that may have controversial themes to them. But the company has also put out, I think, uh, a very uh, important caveat to all of this to say that, look, this is all pretty complicated stuff and we're not going to be perfect on this. So I think we end with buyer beware as always.
final segment, we bring you Spill the Tea. Daniel, what kind of gossip do you have on your beat this week? Well, I've heard um, from a very good source that the Eloy detention facility, which is one of the largest in the country, has exceeded capacity for the last three weeks. That's something I'm going to be looking into. If that's true, that would suggest that would suggest more evidence that the Trump administration is being really cracking down on people in the country illegally. That's pretty good tea from a guy who resists gossiping. Ron, what do you got? Well, sticking with Facebook, uh, my understanding is that uh, there are uh, some some folks actively seeking plaintiffs to uh, possibly sue Facebook and other social media outlets to uh, over these kinds of ads and, and influence uh, seeking. So Arizona may or may not be a party to all that, but uh, there are some lawyers, as always, uh, looking at what, what can be done. Lurking in the background. Jessica. So if Mayor Greg Stanton intends to run for Congress, as we all believe that he does, and he has said that he does, he has to resign by the end of the month. And that means that this week will be his final formal city council meeting after all these years on the council and as mayor. So if you would like to say goodbye, you have a final chance on Wednesday. And at the state level, I understand that uh, Maria Sims's husband may be filing to run in Legislative District 28, which is a very important swing district as an independent that will royal uh, state politics. And uh, I'm sure we'll be reading more about it in the coming days as his intentions for that seat may become more clear. That's it for today. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. You can follow me at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. And you can follow me, Daniel Gonzalez, at A-Z Dan Gonzalez. And I'm at jbame underscore news. And BAME is, of course, spelled B-O-E-H-M. Thanks to the politics team and also our lovely producers who bring in all the equipment, make us sound pretty, make us sound intelligent. Haley Sanchez and Carly Henry. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. See you next week.